0: My life flows on. He's the first man to paint a portrait of every bird in North America. We just to over the dark he ward freight from Vogler's Cara, see who grassed breeze ground. and sore, frauen and prole, lark in slurry, hints drill, o connect the scholar, drink osmo blume It is wonderful to be living Life is marvelous to behold Flocks of birds are gleefully singing Grass is growing green and bold Hear the bumblebees buzzing See the butter fly in flight Out of nectar filled little petals Flowers toast us to our delight Har It is wonderful to be living here in Bishop Hill, in this utopia on the prairie. See who grass where the prairie grasses grow so vibrant and green and you know when the prairie grasses grow so richly then the cows are happy, <laughs> and when the cows are happy they produce the richest milk, the sweetest cream, and the thickest butter, and when the cows are happy, the dairymaids are happy too. <laughs> I am pleased that you would come to hear me, Jonas Olson, one of the founders of Bishop Hill, tell the story of the creation of this Utopia on the Prairie. I also know that some of you are here to hear about the murder of Eric Janssen. He was shot in the heart, twice in the Henry County courtroom in Cambridge, Illinois. And yes, I will tell you about the murder. But first, let me tell you the story of the founding of this community, this utopia on the prairie, Bishop Hill. Let me tell you the story of what led to us immigrating from Sweden, about the journey from Sweden. and and our migration here to the western prairies of Illinois. Uh, the great time of fertility and growth and fecundity here upon the land. And maybe you would also like to hear about the gold rush, and my journey to California, hoping to strike it rich. I I will tell you these stories. But where does my story begin? I was born in in Söderland, Halsingland, in 1802. My father was a farmer. Um, But my father, I'm embarrassed to admit, my father was a drunk. He was so often inebriated that he could not care for our family farm. And I struggled. I I wanted to be a scholar. And I remember when I was a boy, I I was sitting at the kitchen table, and I was learning to read, and I was commenting on the one book that most families own, the good book. And as I was making, scratching some notes, my father came in from the field and he, he, he looks at what I'm doing and he, he snatches the pen from my hand and he, he, he smears the ink, spills the ink jar and he says, you are not a scholar. This is not the work of a farmer's son. But my mother, she encouraged me. When I was 14, I knew it was time for me to leave home, to go out into the world and to make my way. I harvested salmon from the Gulf, and I sold them in Stockholm. I quickly learned that if I could skin and smoke the salmon, then it would bring a better price. As a young man, I began to amass a comfortable living. What little profit I made, I invested in books so I could teach myself to read. And also, while I was in Stockholm, I met one of the founders of the Swedish Methodist Church, and I began to dedicate my life to a better understanding of the Holy Word. When I was still a teenager, my father's drunkenness incapacitated him and my mother begged me to come home and to begin to run the family farm. I did as I was asked. I continued to harvest salmon from the Gulf and to sell them in Stockholm, and our farm prospered. I also began to be involved in the devotionalist movement. My first wife, she was already in, in much involved. But sadly, shortly after we were married, it grieves me to remember. But she died in childbirth. And so I invited my sister, my older sister, to come and live with us to help take care of the farm and to take care of me. And I I redoubled my efforts in the devotionalist movement. Throughout Helsingland, people would gather in parlors and living rooms to read God's holy word to themselves. Knowing that this was forbidden, it was illegal. You must understand that the Lutheran Church and the Swedish crown were very much, um, you would say, in bed together, yes? It was required that you attend church every Sunday, and if you were not there, you could be fined. And not just a tithe, but more like in America, you would say a tax. You had to give a percentage of your income to the church. And the Lutheran Church told you how to pray, and when to pray, and what to pray. It was illegal for us to meet in the parlors and to read the Word for ourselves. But we met, and the church looked the other way, because the devotionalists, we brought people to the church. We increased the devotion of the followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. We also uh, were about sobriety and industry. And so, we were a good in our community, And the church, they tolerated us. But you must know that our parish priest, he took his tithing in wheat, and then he would ferment that wheat and make beer, and sometimes he would distill that beer to make whiskey to sell to his parishioners, encouraging their inebriation. And when we spoke out about this, the church began to notice. I will not forget the first time that I met Eric Janssen Eric Janssen came to my home because he knew that I was a leader in the devotionalist movement. He, He dined with us on Saturday evening, and he went to church with us on Sunday, and he dined with us again on Sunday. But after church, my sister asked to purchase some wheat flour, and he gently scolded her, saying, today is the Lord's day, and I will not do business. But if you wish to purchase wheat flour tomorrow, I'll be happy to accommodate you. On the morrow, on Monday, He gently scolded me, I was his host, I welcomed him into my home, I supped at my table, and he scolded me. He said, you, Jonas Olson, clearly you are a leader in your community, you are the patriarch of your family, yet I have been with you for more than two days, and not once did you call your family to prayer. If you are a man of the word, then should you not also lead your family? To worship. His words struck me. My heart burned with a passion that he expressed so simply. I began to introduce him to other leaders in the devotionalist movement, and when he spoke, there was fire in his words. Now, Eric Janssen had also been born the son of a farmer, but he sold wheat flour he would travel from community to community, from Uppsland to Helsingland, uh, through Sutherland, and, and he became known as the wheat flower messiah. Now, at first, this was a, a name attached to him in scorn, but he willingly adopted it because under the guise of traveling as a wheat flour salesman, he could gather his flock and preach to them, and the fire in his words. Soon, hundreds gathered. Now, when a thousand gathered, the church began to pay attention. When he spoke out against the church, the church began to pay attention. And when he began to burn books, the commentary on the Bible, which he felt got in the way of our understanding of the word, we should read the word and not the commentary. The church paid attention. His book burnings grew angry and violent protestation. He was arrested, not once, or twice, or three, but six times. One time, they put him in a wagon, and they were taking him to the constable, and some of the elders in the devotionalist movement, we stopped the wagon, created a distraction, while others stole him and secreted him away. But eventually, he turned himself in. And I, through my contacts in Stockholm, hired a lawyer, and I met with King Oscar I, and negotiated his release. They would not pardon him, but they said that if he left the country, they would let him go and give him a passport. And so he left the country. And we, as his followers, we were faced with a terrible choice. Do we go back to the Lutheran Church and the ways that we had rejected and live quietly? Or do we follow Eric to the new world? to the wilderness that is America. Let me ask you, would you sell everything you own, leave your friends and family, and go into the unknown? Families were divided. Husbands left wives, and wives left husbands. Children left parents if they were of age, and parents left children if they were of age. We sold everything and we immigrated to the new world. We sold our vorahemmen. We sold our vorahemmen. We sold our vorahemmen. We sold our homes in Sweden and sailed away from friends. Like the bird wings on southward when summer slowly ends. They return in the springtime to nest Upon the strand but we will never once again see our dear motherland. No, we will never once again see our dear motherland. We sold of Orrohemmen We sold of Vorrohemmen We sold of My younger brother, Olaf, he went to America first to scout out land that we might acquire. When he arrived in New York City, he met a man by the name of Reverend Heldström, one of the leaders in the Swedish Methodist Church. Reverend Heldström had a brother who was also a reverend living in Victoria, Illinois. And my brother went there seeking property. Reverend Heldström in Victoria, Illinois, recommended this piece of property north of town. It was called the Red Oak Grove. My brother liked it. But wanting to be sure, he also traveled in several other territories further north and west but he eventually bought some acreage where the Edwards River begins in Henry County, western Illinois. Six ships sailed from Sweden, from Hevla, from Stockholm, and one of those ships sank during the crossing of the Atlantic. This was common. One out of five ships usually sank. That was the average. But we lost more than a hundred souls in the sinking of that ship. I not only paid for the passage of my family, but my hired hands as well, and and we pooled our resources, and even some of the working class who could not afford their own ticket, we paid for their passage. We sailed to New York City. We went up the Hudson River, and then a canal boat took us through the Erie Canal to Lake Erie, at Buffalo, New York. And then we sailed across Lake Erie, Lake Huron, Lake Michigan, to Chicago. And from Chicago, we walked 150 miles. Now, we did not have the resources to buy horses for everyone. We did purchase some horses and wagons to carry our steamer trunks and to uh, uh, help those that were infirm, but most of us walked 150 miles, arriving here in Bishop Hill in September. It was too late to get in a crop. And what little food we had was beginning to run low. And the farmers in the area, though they were prosperous, they did not have food to feed hundreds. We built a few tents and cabins, but most of the people lived underground. We dug uh, like a man-made cave. We called them dugouts. They were about. 18 or 20 feet wide and maybe 30 feet long. We put a log front on and there was a hole in the roof in the back where we could have a fire and the smoke would escape. Of course, the young single women lived in one dugout and the young single men lived in another. Eric Janssen, because the food supply was low, he imposed a period of fasting. (laughs) Fasting for spiritual purposes. Fasting so we did not starve and the food would last longer he also imposed a period of celibacy. Now, some of the young men and women did not sign on for this, and some of them left. But of course, once we began to grow our own food, then the fasting and the celibacy were ended. But we lost more than 160 souls that first winter. Now, most communities, they do not survive their first winter. But when spring came, we began to break the land With teams of oxen, six ox pulling a plow, we began to cut the prairie. Actually, one of our members had known a man uh, from Moline, maybe you've heard of John Deere, and was an investor in Deere Industries. The singing plow, it was called such because when it sliced the prairie grass, the grass roots, like slicing piano strings or guitar strings, they would twang and sing. As the plow moved through the prairie soil, the women would line up, as many as twenty abreast, shoulder to shoulder. In their apron, they had a bag of the Indian corn, or wheat, or flax, and a planting stick. And they would march across the field, and as they marched, they would sing, and they would plant the seeds. And then in the autumn, the crews of men would come with the cradles, and they would cut the wheat, or they would cut the flax, and they would gather it into bundles. And we had a time of great prosperity. Eventually, a thousand two hundred Swedes left their homes and came to join this utopia on the prairie, Bishop Hill. Now, there were times of plenty and times of struggle. When Erik Janssen uh, disavowed the chastity, he began to organize mass marriages, and you could be married to him or her, and and if you needed a husband or you needed a wife, one was assigned or found for you. Sometimes there was romance involved. And one Sunday, we might have five marriages, and another Sunday, we might have 12 marriages, and another Sunday, we might have 23 marriages. And everyone who wanted a spouse was given one. There was one man who had joined the community, John Root. He may or may not have been a member of the Swedish military. He may or may not have been a riverboat gambler. He may or may not have gone AWOL from the military. He certainly was a scoundrel. He saw that he could live simply here because everything was owned in common. Why, even the shirt on your back was owned by the community, and you would turn them into the laundry, you would get free, clean, pressed clothes. He saw that he could live quite lazily here in this community. And he also saw that maybe if he married the uh, cousin of Eric Janssen, the founder of the community, it might give him some advantage. And so he married Charlotta. But ahead of our time, Eric Janssen saw John Root for what he was. And he insisted that John Root sign a contract before the marriage vows were taken. I think you would call this a prenuptial agreement that if Charlotte wanted to stay in the community and John Root wanted to leave, his wife would be given that choice and he would be forced into a divorce. When cholera came through, Eric Janssen very wisely sought to disperse, disband the community, and to send them to far flung settlements. By that time, we owned 14,000 square acres. Thousands of acres of flax and broom corn were being grown. And so, different community members moved to the different corners of the community. Some to our fishing camps. We were fishing people from Sweden. And we had fishing camps in Chillicothe, Illinois, and Rock Island, Illinois, on the Mississippi and the Illinois River. But cholera followed them. And John Root was afraid that he might lose his wife and his newborn son, and so he kidnaps his wife, and he takes them away. Well, it was quite clear that Charlotta did not want to leave the community, and so we, as some of the elders of the community, we kidnapped her and her son and brought them back. And so John Root, he organizes a mob, and he's going to burn the town down. You must remember that Joseph Smith of the Mormons had recently been hung in Nauvoo, And so the mob was built into a frenzy. And when they came with torches, we, the elders of the community, we met them on the outskirts of town. And we told them the real reason that John Root was here to kidnap his wife and child who did not want to go with them, And through reason and logic, we stood our ground and the mob dispersed. So John Root, he comes back again, he kidnaps his wife, and his son, and he takes them to Chicago. Well, we have friends in Chicago, and our friends telegraphed us telling us that where Charlotta was being hidden. And so we, elders in the community, myself among them, we arranged a series of horses like the Pony Express, a horse every 20 miles between here and Chicago. We kidnapped Charlotta. We put her on a swift horse with her son. 20 miles later, she's on another horse. 20 miles later, another horse. And eventually, she made her way back here to Bishop Hill. When John Root wakes up in the morning he, and wonders where his wife is gone. He thinks I can catch a, a woman with a child, but he's not even fast enough to eat her dust. And she made her escape. At this time, uh, we were involved in some financial straits. We had borrowed money to pay the doctor who had uh, attempted to cure us from the cholera. He was a quack at best. So it was thought that maybe some of the elders of the community could go west, taking the advice of Horace Greeley, and go to California to seek our fortune in the gold fields. That was a great adventure. Oh, I will tell you, there are many a day we traveled a hard road in a black rain, eventually making our way over the mountains into California. We did not strike it rich. I will tell you, that the innkeepers, the hotels, the merchants, they created this myth of the gold rush so they could sell rooms and sell goods at an exorbitant price. It would be impossible to tell you how many widows never saw their husbands again, how many orphans never saw their fathers, why you could travel from Council Bluffs all the way to California without touching the earth simply walking upon the dead horses and oxen and the other things discarded along the way by those seeking their wealth in the gold fields. We barely broke even. We found some gold. But one of the nine perished, and another one decided to stay. But maybe instead of finding gold, (laughs) I found a Swede who was impressed with the men from Bishop Hill. He joined our community and brought some wealth with him, and that was the gold that I brought home. But while I was there, I received a telegram that Eric Janssen had been murdered. I jumped on a boat in San Francisco, and I sailed to Nicaragua. I crossed the Isthmus and then found another boat that would take me to New Orleans. From New Orleans, I boarded a steamboat that brought me up the Mississippi, up the Illinois, and from Peoria, I raced back to Bishop Hill. And Eric was dead. It seems the night before he died, he delivered a sermon knowing it would be his last. The next day, he went to the Henry County Courthouse in Cambridge, Illinois. He had business to attend to with some of the people seeking retribution for the debt that we owed them. It turns out in the very next courtroom, John Root was being tried for trespass and other criminal activity. When he heard that Eric Janssen was in the adjoining courtroom while the court was in recess, in front of the judge and the sheriff, he shoots Eric Janssen point-blank in the heart. He died on the spot. Eric was brought back to Bishop Hill, and they cried and mourned over him for three days, attending his corpse, thinking that he might rise again if indeed he was the prophet that he led us to believe he was. Now, he had said that the leadership of the community was hereditary and that his son should take his place, But his son was just a boy. His wife arranged for Stoneberg to be the interim director, so she still had some power. But when I arrived, I made sure that it was a council of seven who managed the community, and we had a time of great prosperity. Some say it might have been the prosperity that led to the dissolution of the community. The people got a taste of the efforts their independent and individual work could produce, and they wanted a bigger piece of the pie. Others say that maybe because a couple of the council were more interested in their personal wealth than the wealth of the community. That might be part of the reason it dissolved. But I did bring today a piece of the charter that I would like to read to you. Our ambitions were high. Our property and industry and the proceeds thereof shall constitute a common fund by and with which it shall be the duty of the board of trustees to provide for the sustenance, comfort, And reasonable wants of every member of the colony, for the support of the aged and the infirm, for the care and cure of the sick and burial of the dead, and for the proper education of our children, and generally to do and transect any and all business necessary to the prosperity, happiness, and usefulness of the colony, and consistent with the charter of the Bishop Hill colony. These were the high ideals that we strove for. We built one of the first schools. We built the largest brick building west of Chicago. We built one of the largest hotels. We built one of the first hospitals in Henry County. And our people, we prospered for so many years. Eventually, when the community was dissolved, everybody was given shares. Again, you might say we were ahead of our time, but even women and children were given a share of the property. Every spoon and every shirt was counted and divided. Now, of course, some of the older men who had made more investment were given larger shares. And some of the single women might have been given just a room in one of the buildings, an apartment for their sustenance. They were given property to grow their own food and shares in a timber lot, so they had fuel for the winter. It was tied up in the courts because some were not happy with their share for nearly 28 years before the community was finally and formally dissolved. But we are here today to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Bishop Hill, and I'm honored that you ask me, Jonas Olson, one of the founders, to tell this story. It would be a great comfort if we, in our old age, could be spared witnessing the destruction that has recently threatened us, and if our descendants, after we have gone on to our fathers, have nobler things to view when looking back on the bygone days than a ruined place intended as a dwelling for the people of God. Harar Guru Gata Dvara O hund He vad from fogla skara Sehu grased lisa grunt Homlen sura fraal improved larken and slurry him sindril o connector feed the scholar drink o smo